0: to the Bitcoin Consciousness podcast. I'm here today with Seb Bunny, one of the men behind Looking Glass Education. And recently he wrote a piece about ID creation that caught my interest. So I invited him to come here. Welcome, Seb.
1: Thanks for having me, Sama. I'm a huge fan of your work. I think what you're doing is really touching on kind of consciousness and spirituality in Bitcoin, uh, something that not uh, no others that I've seen today touch on. So I really value it.
0: Yeah, we spoke uh, a couple of times before, so it, it's been really nice to get to know you. Thanks. Let's get into this topic, ID creation. So what are IDs?
1: So what is an idea? Hmm. I would say that an idea is a culmination of one, our experience from what we have consumed, whether it is books, whether it is podcasts, whether it is news, it is kind of a culmination of kind of our experience, but also it is our internal connections at which we have uh, pieced together between the knowledge at which we've consumed. And so idea creation is both from the external world, and it is also internal. And depending on what the idea is, I think it's a Uh, a different proportion of either external or internal knowledge. That's kind of how I would think of an idea.
0: All right. And do you think it's possible for ideas to originate inside?
1: Yeah, I'd say this is a really challenging question, just because when you read a lot of spiritual texts, they usually reference that we are all connected and we have everything we need internally. And so then you've got to ask yourself, when I consume this knowledge, am I consuming it from the external world and now I understand it? Or am I just awakening to something that was already inside of me? And this is just kind of helping to spark that little bit of inspiration. And so this is something that actually, if I'm to be honest, I don't have an answer to. I would like to think it is the latter. But uh, if you're looking at it from kind of the rational Western brain, people would say that's impossible and it's the former and that we're definitely consuming content to create ideas
0: yeah so if we take this a little bit further of ideas being able to exist inside of us and sort of an external source then can awaken that idea within us then we come into a couple of episodes ago i had hoodlun out here and we were talking about the energy body and the energy body then consists on different, of different frequencies. So different chakras, energy centers with different quality of frequencies. So if we look at frequencies as carriers of concepts, ideas, then this could make sense of that we have ideas within us, and that, that they're maybe not active but uh, that external sources can awaken them.
1: No, I, and actually, I, I, I do fully agree. I think that the way I like to think about idea creation in general is when it comes to our brain, our brain is really good at doing one thing really well, and that is creating connections and kind of like new formations out of old ideas and stuff that we have consumed. And so when I like to think about idea, cre- idea creation – I don't want to just consume and consume and consume. There has to be time for contemplation. And so think of it as the scaffolding around your brain. Our brain is phenomenal at idea creation and creating those disparate connections between two kind of unconnected kind of thoughts. But what the brain is not very good at is specifics. And when I say specifics, i mean like facts and data and being able to recall a story in the exact objective way that it happened. And so because of that, I tend to use note taking to my benefits. And when I read a book, when I uh, explore a podcast, I tend to kind of take a ton of notes down. And that means that what that does is allow me to get those interesting points down on paper. So then I can let my mind go and wander and contemplate and think about what is it about my current knowledge base before I read the book. And now this new knowledge that I've added in I'm now creating new ideas between these two bodies and i think the idea generation comes from internally from creating those kind of uh connections between two ideas that previously you had not thought of does that make sense
0: yeah contemplation is sort of a way for us to connect the dots between old ideas and new ideas and that's sort of a function you can say so like a contemplation function in us Mm -hmm. but then where the ideas come from can be both inner you know like visions visions. it's sort of we get an idea that that we never read we never heard anyone say it just comes up within us Mm -hmm. that's sort of an original idea And then you have, like you said, with podcasts and books, and then we have this contemplation function, which sort of connect all the dots between these different IDs, and then we can create combinations of these IDs. Yeah. Do we Mm -hmm. understand each other?
1: A hundred percent. And what's really fascinating is in that, uh, newsletter that you read, where I talked about idea generation. That day, or the day that I wrote it, I'd been reading a book called uh, Brief Answers to Big Questions. It was Stephen Hawking's last book. And one of the things that I found was fascinating is I was thinking about idea generation, and then I read this book, and it said that when two black holes collide, the volume or the mass of the two black holes ends up being greater than the two independent black holes on their own. And so you wonder how that's possible. And I think this is what's happening when we consume information. We have kind of our old body of knowledge, which is the the body of knowledge that we had prior to consuming some new information. Then we have this new body of knowledge that say, it's a book or a podcast that they're consuming. But when you consume and those two combine, you don't just have the sum of those two bodies. You also have all of those interconnections between those two independent areas, which have now come about through contemplation. And so this is where... You were talking earlier about frequencies, and I think that what's really interesting is it takes time to digest information internally, or you could think of it as in it takes time for your brain to shift frequency to be able to understand the information or resonate with the information that it's consuming for these new ideas to come about internally. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it's sort of like a synthesis. Mm Mm-hmm all the different inputs, and then we create our own models out of the data that we receive. So after I read this piece, I was wondering my own process, like how much I take ideas from the outside world and how much I take from the inside world and what I do with the balance. And if I look at my life, I have had different periods of like I, when I fell down the rabbit hole, I was listening to so many podcasts and reading so many articles and books. Uh, so I, I was like very externalized, you can say, but but I allowed myself because that's where I found a lot of interesting information at the time. But But after a year or so, I was reminded of my own inner source of information. So I started cutting back on the podcast and informations, because I wanted to tap into my own unique genius and get my mm-hmm. own ideas. Yeah, you can call this contemplation, but I see this more as a, as a function. Mm-hmm. But the source, the source of the ideas, I see them as external versus internal. So at the moment, I would say that I have 60% I'm internal. So this means like I spend like 60% of my time researching. I do it inside of myself, like in meditation and and so on. And then 40% from the outside, because I don't want I don't want to be like a follower. I don't want to be too much influenced by other people. I feel my individual sovereignty is I need to have my my main focus on what comes from inside of me. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
1: No, that makes complete sense. And an analogy I heard recently around idea creation, and again, I think I mentioned it in the newsletter, was the fact that most of us have cars. But when we have a car, if we don't fill it up with gas or content, we're not going to make it very far and we're going to run out. But we don't have a car to just sit at the gas station and fill up constantly and just do nothing with the car, Just, just fill up constantly with content and information and gas. And so it's about kind of sometimes finding that balance between exploring and filling up with gas. And that balance is different for most people. Do you want to spend a little bit of time kind of consuming content and a lot of time exploring, or do you want to spend a lot of time uh, filling up with content and a little bit of time exploring? And I think that that balance is unique to us as individuals. And I think that the thing that's really challenging is answering kind of the question that you mentioned at the start is... Can you get idea creation without external content? And that I don't 100% know the answer to it. And I'd love to know your thoughts. What What do you think?
0: Uh, yeah, and this is a little bit why I would discord my interest, because I, I really like external sources, but the internal sources and since reading that and deciding for this conversation, I've been thinking about it even more and how that's process really looks like and for me it's it has to do with this mechanism of identification so as long as we identify with our IDs, like we feel certain that our beliefs are true and the way we see the world and ourselves this is true that's equivalent of keeping the car at the gas pump because internally are not really shifting the the frequencies. So, if we are stuck in our beliefs and our our ideas, we we don't get new ideas. And it's this like owning ideas, like this is what I believe. That then we can't fill up with new ones from the inside. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that concept?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and. I think that what's really important, and you briefly touched on it, which is, there's a quote that I really like, which is, consciousness is the awareness of who you are, as opposed to who you believe you are. And I think that it's really important to try and find that balance between understanding who you are and not who you want to be. Because I think a lot of us, and especially when you live in the Western world and and through media, uh, advertisement, we get a lot of images pushed on us about who we should be. I think it's really important if you want idea generation, you have to be seeking things that truly resonate with you as an individual and not with things that are being told that you should be resonating with. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Sometimes I, I like in this identification function in our energy body. It's like this pickup on a vinyl player. Mm-hmm. And if it's constantly down Then we just hear the same old thoughts moving over and over and over again. So then we feel like, oh, I don't get any new ideas. Because Mm -hmm. the meditation and it's like lifting the pickup, you know, when you want to switch the record. You lift the pickup and then you just allow the ideas to flow. And you don't identify with them. You sort of just listen to them or watch them depending on what kind of inner sense you have active, or you can listen to them in sound form or verbal form. It's just frequencies that passing through as soon as we learn how to lift that pickup up. And then this wondrous process of nature kicks in where old ideas, old frequencies move out of the system and new frequencies, higher frequencies come into the, so it's, we start this uh, upgrading process, like what is happening with all the trees and bushes and everything like that. It's like, as long as we have the pickup down, we don't grow, we don't allow new ideas to come into us. It's connected with this, if you have it down, then you have this fixed idea, who you think you are, who you, what you think the world is like, just lifting this up, and just allowing new perspectives the new ideas to flow through the system.
1: Completely, and it's interesting because when I talk about contemplation, there's actually a really good book called um, Contemplation by Richard Rudd. And I think the Western world perceives contemplation as an active thought. So we're actively trying to get something out of information we've consumed. But I think the reality is, the contemplation is also this thing that just goes on subconsciously, and it's similar to mindfulness in a sense. It's when I take my dog for a walk. Sometimes I'll be walking through the forest, and I'll be trying to solve a problem back home on my computer, something to do with work. When I'm walking through the forest, I'm not thinking about work. I'm not thinking about this problem. But all of a sudden, it just pops up, and the answer to uh, that, or the solution to the the problem I've been facing, just arises. And you've probably also noticed the same thing when you go to sleep with a question in your head and in the morning you have the answer. And so I think that contemplation is not just this thing where we're actively trying to process, but instead it is this thing that is going on in the background when we give our mind time to rest or time to kind of disconnect from all of the external stimuli or all of the internal stimuli as in thoughts and constant processing. So when you give that time to disconnect, that allows our brain to start processing and connecting with these alternate frequencies uh, to come up with answers.
0: Okay, so that's very interesting. As part of my meditations, I think of it as active focus and passive focus. And you were basically describing the passive focus. And it's almost like we have, as humans, these two natures. We have active nature and passive nature almost like one and zero, in computer world. So if we look at it like this, then everything we do in passive, it's just sort of intuitively merging, flowing, moving. And then to do something in the active, we need to have an ID. We need to have a structure, because to do something, we need to have a model for that action. So, looking at these two basic elements, you could say that the only two elements are flow, passive, and structure, the active. So this is the deeper level thinking that I was coming through, thinking about this conversation, because an ID, any ID, is just a structure that we are able to imagine. So we have an ID for how to brush our teeth, for example. So that's a sort of a structure, and then we act on that structure. And then, if we get a problem with our teeth, we need to upgrade that ID. And then we can go to podcasts or YouTube and find information. We can go to the dentist or we can go into contemplation. How can I improve this structure around brushing my teeth? And for me, this is like the essence of existence because. It's only these two options of passively observing and then to have a structure, to have an idea, and act on this idea. Are you following my thoughts here? Yeah, and I want
1: to add that what comes to mind is kind of the difference between a centralized versus kind of a decentralized system. Because if you think about it, an active idea when you're consciously thinking about something, usually revolves around a centralized thought. So someone tells us something, and then that something is what we kind of tend to revolve our thought thought around. However, when you have a passive thought, a passive thought taps into, whether it's your knowledge base or this external knowledge base, uh, it taps into a much more diverse, decentralized web of information. And that's where we sometimes pull out ideas or answers to things from much greater sources than we would be able to conceive of in our active thought. And so it's kind of the difference between kind of a centralized idea versus a decentralized idea that can pull from a much larger knowledge base.
0: Interesting, yes. The society today is based around ideas, fixed ideas that people somehow want to keep, uh, they don't like so much to change the structures of society. And Bitcoin comes in as this crusher of the known biased being so that you say it's centralized, it's it's interesting because it's sort of limiting but but it doesn't have to be. So if we if we choose the decentralized option, which is basically to activate our, Intuitions and learning how to center ourselves and and meditate, we are able to tap into this decentralized nature. Like you said, it's like internet is like a an external way to get this decentralized information, and inside we can get it. So, what is it then that is making these centralized structures so? stuck in today's world i think
1: that it's consciousness rather than unconsciousness because if you think about what consciousness is and the way that it works it is always looking for external stimuli it looks for excitement and in the end that means that if we're constantly being given news and social media and we're trying to uh, promote ideas the problem is we get stuck on the stimulus at which has entered us. And then we revolve our ideas around that stimulus. Whereas being able to step out of kind of the rat race of society and step back from using our rational conscious brain and start to use and tap into the subconscious, I think that that is where it becomes really, really powerful. And there's lots of individuals, whether you're talking about Michael Singer and his books, like where they say, they, they had a download. It came from externally, uh, but externally not necessarily from the external world, but it was more of a contemplation or an internal uh, download where it's as if they were connected to a different source and they had access to so much more information that was outside of their consciousness.
0: Yeah. This reminds me of the beginning of my journey where I learned to channel quite quickly. So after my awakening experience where everything turned to frequencies, then it was a natural step to learn to tune into those frequencies. And then the following step would be to express those frequencies. So, so I was experimenting a lot with that. So it's it's like one mechanism tuning in. So you can think of anything like a tree or an angel or could be physical or it could be spiritual doesn't matter and then when you tune into that you allow that frequency to flow through you so you can then uh, write a story or you can play uh, an instrument or solo or you can sing or you can draw something all these different expressions like human expressions and I think for many, it's unconscious. They're sort of like just accidentally, Ooh, I got this idea and it flows through them and, and they do something. And then, ooh, I felt a flow state. But I learned to sort of understand that process as a young adult. And I could tap into different systems in my energy body and so on and, and allow that to flow. So this is what you're talking about, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned earlier that sometimes we latch on to ideas, whether it's ideas about ourself or ideas about how we want to be. And I think that going back to frequencies, I think what's fascinating is sometimes you could think of, as you mentioned, those ideas as just simply frequencies. And so someone kind of changes the radio channel, they like a radio channel, and they just sit on it. And they're not necessarily growing as individuals. And I think that one of my favorite quotes that a guy named Gabor Marte mentioned on a Tim Ferriss podcast, and it's a bit of a meaty one, but I'll read it because I think it is, it's fascinating. And he says, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They are actually yours. They're specifically yours, designed specifically for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. That part of you loves you more than anything else, has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You are not going in the right direction unless there is someone pricking you in the side, telling you, look here, this way. That part of you loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That is purpose. And so that quote I find really fascinating because I think sometimes we attach to an identity or we stay on a radio frequency channel and we don't want to shift. But I think that if we want to grow as individuals, as you mentioned earlier in the talk, we have to be able to recognize that all of these situations that happen in our life are there just to kind of move us on to shift radio frequency, to grow as individuals and take in uh, more of the world or explore more of our own thoughts, whether internally or externally.
0: Yeah. Good quote yeah yeah one way of looking at it and again when i say one way of looking at it it's it's like a structure it's a model that i've created you know from a vision or from a book i don't even remember but so you can also call it a reference point you know i can feel that frequency of the concept that i'm about to tell you (laughs) so if we go deep here so this is a concept it has a frequency And I'm now going to tell you what this contains. And it could be right or it could be wrong. It doesn't matter. It's just a reference point, right? And so it's nothing to identify with or nothing to defend. It's just a reference point. So this reference point is, if you imagine a piano and sort of we exist on all of these notes. So it's different frequencies. So we are sort of all of it, and we can move on this piano and experience our fullness, what we are. But what has happened is that we have sort of mud on the strings of this piano. So when you press it, it maybe sounds like, "Mm, mm," it's not a clear note. So you can't really experience that note fully. So when you come to that or you experience that, you will have some kind of problem in your life. So every time that note comes, you will sort of attract some kind of problem or so. And that will happen until you you take a look at the mud on the string on that one. So take a look at the string and figure out what kind of past experience or something we inherited from our parents that is messing up that frequency. And when we look at that, we take up the pickup. We look at that without defending ourselves, without feeling bad or, or, or blaming anyone else. But you see, okay, this is this is what has happened. And when we are able to do that, the mud sort of leaves the string, and then that piano note sounds good again. And basically, for us, it's like that experience will be more pleasant experience.
1: I think you're absolutely spot on. When it comes to who we are as individuals, we are kind of a product of our past. And recognizing that allows us to understand that we can change as individuals. And so when we find ourselves in an emotional situation or a challenging situation, a lot of the time we should ask ourselves, is the stimuli which I'm receiving in line with my response? Because if my response, if I'm getting incredibly angry and then I question, well, that stimuli is not very aggravating, it shows that a lot of the time we're responding from the past. And so exactly as you're saying, we're responding from this kind of piano key that is stuck in the mud. And so then suddenly going into kind of inquiry mode, when we start to question, what is it about the situation am I taking to mean about me as an individual? And then you can start to uncover that mud and start to remove that mud. So the next time that situation arises and you press that piano key, it resonates as it should resonate and not, as you mentioned, this kind of like dull thud.
0: Yeah. And sometimes we can call this mud also like filters. So it's filters that it's like a mood we are in or a feeling towards others. And just allowing that, not stepping into that and sort of defending it, that mood, but just observing that mood is similar to removing the mud on the piano string. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I I completely agree. And I think it all starts with kind of that, that inquiry, like actually having curiosity. And so when it comes to contemplation, again, most of the time i find that when i want to kind of identify an answer or a solution to something i usually start with the active thought and then that active thought leads to passive thought because if i don't start with the active thought at some point usually the consciousness doesn't necessarily but uh, the subconscious the 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 passive thought doesn't necessarily have something to start from and that, that's just kind of how i visualize it. i don't know if you visualize it the same
0: maybe you can give an example
1: so i gave the example of if i'm walking through the forest and i've just been sat at my desk working on a problem i've been consciously using active thought to think about the problem but when i'm out in the forest i'm not thinking about the problem i'm just kind of observing the things around me whether it's the trees the snow on the ground my dog I'm just kind of observing the information around me. But subconsciously, I have passive thought going on. And then suddenly that that answer to the, to the question I had arises. And so I think that many times when we have an unconscious passive thought, it is initially triggered at some point. It doesn't have to be five minutes before. It doesn't have to be the day before. It doesn't even have to be the year before. But a lot of the time, I see it triggered by some form of active thought. And that kind of initially starts to tune our kind of frequency or our antenna in the right direction. And then the subconscious takes over and starts to process after we've kind of let go of that active thought.
0: Yeah. But if we don't let go of that active thought, it will keep on repeating again and again, right? And that's the difference with that pickup again you have to be able to lift up the pickup to actually let go of that thought because otherwise we continue to identify with it and we will continue to run that frequency over and over again until we understand it. Mm -hmm. So if we look at that a little bit deeper, basically all our thoughts, all our active thoughts are patterns. that's how we sort of survive. That's our programming. That's how we manage in life. That's how we earn money. That's how we get friends, girlfriends, and so on. It's thanks to our programming. This could maybe sound bad, but it actually depends on our programming. <laughs> if we have good programming, it's like, ah. You know, I can just trust my programs. I have really good programs. They make me healthy. They make sure I have a fun hobbies. I have a great wife and so on. So it's like all these programs. The problem is just when the programs are unconscious, they're sort of inherited from our parents or from friends or from actors that are famous or whatever. So we just get these patterns and they're just living the life for us. And if we have bad programs, then that's, that's a problem. So for me, it's like everyone has programs, but it's just a question of how much do we upgrade our system? How much do we upgrade our programs so we continually get a better and better and better, better life? And for me, this has to do with the frequency resonances. It's like low quality, low frequency programs. They're like guilt, shame, fear, and so on. They create bad programs that actually make problems for us. So if we have like a low frequency toothbrushing program, then every time we brush our teeth, we will feel sort of annoyed, bad, and worry about tomorrow but if we upgrade that, if we allow ourselves to look at it, we can upgrade it to a higher frequency. Then it's more quality. It's a quality program. And then every time you go to brush your teeth, you feel like in have inspiration for the next day. You will brush really good, so you will not have to go to, to dentist and so on. I was just inspired by what you said.
1: <laughs> no, and... It brings up a a thought of mine that I've been thinking about and kind of contemplating on for quite a while. And, And that is the fact that when we look at, say, depression, for instance, depression is not genetic. There's no genetic markers for depression. And so then you've got to ask, well, where does it come from? And similar to what you're saying, I believe it is a program. And so as children, if when we were upset, or when we were angry, or when we were sad, our parents told us, why are you crying? Why are you feeling that way? They're judging the emotions that we feel. And now we actively, we, we objectively feel these emotions. And it's not wrong to feel emotions. But with our questions, uh, with our parents questioning us feeling those emotions, what happens is we learn to depress. And that's where the depress and depression comes from. We learn to depress those emotions because we believe it is wrong to feel those emotions. And all of a sudden, what we do in that moment is we forget how to process effectively. And so as adults, when we feel sad, upset, frustrated, all of a sudden we don't know how to express ourselves or how to resolve the issue. And this leads to kind of internal anxiety, it leads to depression. And so I think that as you talk about these programs, I think it's really important when we have maybe an outcome in life that we're not necessarily too happy with, we've got a question, is the outcome a product of my programming and if so how can i start to identify where my program has gone wrong and how can i start to tweak my program in order to maximize who i am as an individual and be the best i can be
0: yeah it's like a a common program in in this society today is that you shouldn't feel bad and and sort of we try to save our children from feeling negative emotions so they get this program that they should avoid negative emotions uh, and like like you said in your explanation this cr- creates a lot of problems later because your program is basically to just avoid negative emotions because it doesn't matter so much what you do as long as you don't feel those emotions and usually then it's negative things you do to avoid them
1: yeah and There's another perfect example of this, which is ADHD. So in society, again, there's no genetic markers for ADHD. You can't test someone for like biologically as to whether they have ADHD. So then the question is, is this a product of our environment? And so there's a lot of information on this. And many believe that as children, when we are put in an uncomfortable situation, we have three ways we can respond. We can fight back. We can flight, we can run away, or we can kind of uh, zone out, and we can kind of look the other way. And so, in those three situations, if you're three years old and your parents put you in an uncomfortable situation or your needs are not being met, what do we do? Well, we're not going to fight back. We're three years old. We can't necessarily run away because again, we're three years old. So we learn to disconnect. We we learn to zone out. And so a lot of the time, ADHD is triggered from kind of a childhood experience whereby we are. Trying to disconnect from the uncomfortable feelings that we are feeling in life and feeling in our kind of like immediate environment, and so being able to recognise that as adults, we can slowly start to shift or start to start to adapt our patterns so that we make kind of use of these these skills that have kind of uh, held us back for so long. For instance, like I, I was diagnosed with ADHD as a child, but I can very much recognise how it came about from my own childhood experiences and i I think that's fascinating because it goes back to the programs you're talking about and being able to recognize these programs and how to tweak these programs in order to maximize our output
0: yeah i was stuck in the idea for quite some time that that this was when you make the children then they sort of are stuck with that dna for the rest of their life Mm -hmm. and it's not until recently that I have started to understand more this concept of time and space. And it's really now my model tells me that it's more of a living blueprint rather than something fixed like DNA. And it's really opened up a lot for me uh, with my children. That limiting belief I had it that it's already too late for me i was sort of you know my dna was not so good when i created my children and now they have to suffer but now i just feel like almost like we are this team we are this dna team because they have my dna and you know and i have the same so when i work on my dna string or frequencies they benefit from that and they then go out in their life and and meat experiences, it's like almost like we are this team working on the same blueprint that we're sharing in the family. Have you ever thought about that?
1: I, I completely agree. And it's interesting. Uh, there's a book that I read a few years ago called um, Deep Nutrition. And Deep Nutrition explores how basically our food impacts our genetics. And so, again, most people... See genetics as this thing that is fixed from the moment we're born, we are who we are. But the reality is that genes can be turned on or off given different environments. And so there's many pictures of First Nations or Indigenous individuals through multi-generational families, where you've got the great-grandparent, then the grandparent, then the parent, and then the child, and then maybe the grand uh, the grandchild. And you notice how the great-grandparent lived on a very whole food, authentic diet. And then you get the grandparent who lived on majority whole food, authentic diet, but started to have some Western influence from processed foods. And then you get the parent who lives on predominantly processed foods. And then the kid who is now basically just eating sugar and crap. And what you start to see is from the grandparent, this very proportionate individual who is kind of like tall and muscular. And then it goes to someone who is the, to the Sorry, that's a great grandparent. Then you have the grandparent, and the grandparent is still very proportionate, but starting to put on a bit of weight. And then you look at the parent, and the parent starts to look not necessarily proportionate, not even just in size, but also like slightly longer limbs or slightly larger head. And this is because as a child, they were not necessarily given the nutrients that they needed from the food. And then you go all the way down to present day children, and you see. Kids have got teeth issues, they've got proportionate issues, they've got health issues. And a lot of this is stemming from they say, oh, it's just bad genes, but it's not. It's 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 a product of their environment and the food at which they're consuming. They're not being nourished effectively. And so I think it's really important uh in life to recognize that we can be, we're in control of our genetics. And so if there's something that we are facing, to to a large part, we can change that. Like of course, there's some illnesses that we are born with that are purely genetic and we're not able to reverse them but a lot of our issues we can reverse through our environment whether it's changing our diet whether it's changing our headspace whether it's meditating more whether it is getting out and doing exercise there's many ways to change our genetics
0: yeah but it's two main ways when it comes to programming and this is something i try tried to highlight in some of my articles it's like A lot of the self-help or self-development, like Tony Robbins and um, so on, it's like Mm -hmm. they are not so interested in healing the old programs or like upgrading the old programs. They are more focused on building new programs on top of the old ones. And actually, they are even using the pain from the old programs as you know, your why, finding your why. You want to sort of revenge on the world. So you, you you act from this kind of victim mentality or underdog because you were bullied or something like that. So basically they're saying, don't heal this. This is your motor. This is your engine. So then... They use this force from this pain point in their childhood and they create with willpower and so on. They create new structures, new programs. It's almost like you create a fake self. So you create a fake self that you show the world and you do all these things and you get all this success and so on. Uh, and then behind this is sort of the hurt the child that was never healed. And, and if they have this huge empire like Tony Robbins, then... You know, he can't even go back and heal this because it, then he would lose his engine, you know, because his whole empire is built on this pain as a child. I think that's just a very destructive direction to take. You, he can have a luxurious life, but he didn't heal his his true self. And he's not like expressing his soul on the planet. He's more created like a robot of himself or an AI. Can you see this perspective?
1: I It's, it's a challenging one because I see it from both sides. And I think that there, there are many times that we create a false sense of ourselves in order to try and be that individual. And I think that from my own personal experience, I don't think it's very effective because then when we, if we do achieve this, I don't know, this success, this false sense of ourselves, the reality is we're not happy because that's not who we are. And it doesn't necessarily resonate with who we are. However, I would say if anyone wants to watch something really fascinating, if you go to YouTube and type in Tony Robbins solves stutter, there is a African-American guy in the States who, since he was four years old, he has had this stutter and he's not been able to speak properly throughout all of his childhood and he's he's probably now in his i'd say late 30s early 40s he's got a family and he's and he's dealt with this thing his whole life and it's impacted his jobs everything so tony robbins starts to unpack where the stutter came from and what he starts to realize is there's a singular moment tony robbins asks him do you remember the moment at which the stutter came about and the moment was his parents were arguing they were shouting at each other and in that moment he was watching a cartoon And on this cartoon, this child learned to stutter as a way to gain attention. And so he turns around to his parents who are arguing, and he starts stuttering. And his parents immediately stop their arguing and give him uh, like love and affection. And so all of a sudden, he recognizes that if he stutters, he gets attention, and he stops his parents from fighting. And so that program suddenly has now kind of been impregnated and is following him all the way through to adulthood. And so in this one moment, Tony Robbins is able to recognize this program that is playing. And then he's able to turn that program, completely reverse that program. And within honestly, like 15 minutes, he goes from stuttering all the way up to 40 years old to never stutters again. And and so it's interesting because I think that there are definitely times where, yes, they're building kind of this false impression of themselves and then getting people to live up to or kind of uh, fake it till you make it. And I think that that's not necessarily the most productive way to do things. But I think there are also times that sometimes they're going back to these programs, trying to break them down and shift that program as we've kind of been talking about. I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
0: I was following Tony Robbins for, in a period of doing his, some of his programs and he has done a lot of good stuff, of course, but at some point I I understood that It was the opposite direction from where I wanted to go, mm-hmm. because I was following, you know, people like Eckhart Tolle and Tony Robbins, and and for a while I thought they were going in the same direction, until I understood that they were not going in the same direction, and I felt very torn, like you said, that you can see it from both sides. And I came to this breaking point where I had to choose because they, they, it was like I was going two paths at the same time. I think many of his techniques works, but it's something he's missing about the uh, programmings. Have you followed mm-hmm.
1: him? I've been to one of his conferences uh, maybe about five years ago and I've listened to a, a few of his talks and I think that it's interesting because he his premise is built off NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. And so it's all about, again, like going back and changing the way we think. And it's a challenging one because just by changing the way we think, that doesn't necessarily change our reality. And so we've got to be conscious of, are we actually making lasting change and changing who we are? Or are we just kind of creating a new self and uh, this false identity that we're kind of like stepping into? And I think that, I'm very much pro if you're going back and trying to change who we are as individuals uh, in order to be our best self. But creating a false self and stepping into that false self, uh, it is my understanding and from my own personal experience that it's not necessarily effective because we're not necessarily from an energetic perspective. We're not resonating with who we are because that isn't who we are. And I think that's just where it's really important. Again, like I like quotes and there's one of my favorite quotes is, it's better to follow the voice inside and be at war with the whole world than to follow the ways of the world and be at war with your deepest self. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I think the world tells us how we should act or how we should be or what what success is. But the reality is that it is very much unique to you. And that comes from inquiry as to like, well, who am I? And what is it that motivates me and 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 gives me drive?
0: Yeah, what you described there is could be described as soft coding or hard coding and if we think of the mind or the the thoughts that's sort of soft coding and this is what what Tony Robbins and these guys are doing like NLP you're basically changing the soft coding but without changing the the root programming like the 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 true traumas from the past so and how to make this work is sort of you have to sort of shut down or bury the hard coding and then build soft coded programs on top. This is what what you say when when you create a false sense of self. And I think that works for many people, uh, at least to some extent, because it will always be this gap between who they truly are, but they can reach this external success like, like you talk about, these reference points that we, we are feeded with uh, throughout our upbringing like what is success so to be able to achieve this cultural success it's actually an effective way to shut down the, the real programming and build soft coded programs on top and just live in this little bubble but usually it comes to a point where you get sick or something like that because the hard-coded programs, like nature, you know, they just want to come out. They just want to be healed. And if you have this, like, it's like a pressure cooker. You just keep them down and you just pretend, pretend, pretend with this soft-coded pro- personality. I think that's what many people do. And then you just have these people that just, it just blows up and you're okay. Can't ignore it anymore. You have to go into the hard-coded programs that that are really running the show behind the scenes,
1: completely. And bringing it back to kind of Bitcoin, I think what's fascinating is right now in the fiat world, we are using all of these soft-coded programs built upon this faulty model, and so the faulty model is fiat. And fear creates all these byproducts, whether it is wealth inequality, whether it is kind of innovation suppression, you name it. We have all of these byproducts from fear. and we try to mask them with all of these soft-coded programs, which you can think of as legislation or stimulus and quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. We're always trying to mask these byproducts, whereas the reality is we've kind of got to step back and recognize that actually the underlying hard-coded program is faulty. And if we can change the hard coded program to something that is far more effective and in line and resonates with us as individuals and the general populace, I think it's going to be a lot more beneficial for humanity.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good parallel. And when you said is it it was like I saw Tony Robbins event, it's similar like mass media. So mass mm-hmm. media, all these news stations that are manipulated and controlled, of course. They're just pumping out this message like, yes, inflation is good. We can do this. They're trying to sort of pump up this fake identity and sort of push down all the truth by all the corruption and all these things. So it's really a similar scenario of the whole humanity. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's really fascinating. I, there's a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years by a guy called David Graeber. And in it, he explores what life was like pre-money and then post-money. And he calls the pre-money life the human economy. And kind of the human economy is built on relations and morality-based exchange between individuals. And so we're basically, we're exchanging for the greater good of society because we want to better society. And if we give back to society, if we give back to society as a community, we're going to all benefit. Whereas the problem with fiat and the problem with post-money is that we now have the commercial economy. All of a sudden, because it's kind of built on property law and involves a debt-based exchange of goods, where we're trying to exchange services and goods between one another, the exchange is always for the benefit of the individual. We're trying to get as much as we can. And so when you look at, say, the human economy, you have a very collaborative economy. Whereas when you have the commercial economy, it's an extractive economy. We're trying to extract, we're trying to get what we can. And so I think what's fascinating about Bitcoin is because Bitcoin cannot be controlled and because Bitcoin is deflationary in nature, so purchasing power purchasing power is going to increase over time, all of a sudden it actually incentivizes us to contribute to society. It starts incentivizing us to give value uh, back to society for the betterment of society. And so it changes our programming. It changes how society interacts with one another. It's fascinating.
0: For sure. Yeah. This is like the healing of the old programming, of the humanity's hard-coded programs, if we continue that analogy. So Bitcoin comes in, and it's just shattering this superficial world and going into the depth of, humanity's pain Mm -hmm. and it's will be probably able to to heal it all the way through and then we have the golden age
1: 100 percent. yeah yeah that time will come and people will slowly realize that we've been building on top of building on top of this soft coded faulty programming for a while and i think more people are waking up which is really powerful and without talking about the news I think that this whole FDX debacle, which is happening right now, I think is only going to help raise awareness to the importance of something such as Bitcoin and proof of reserves and proof of uh, reality. I think that it allows us to uh, prevent these fractionalized systems from building upon debt and uh, things that aren't necessarily real. Yeah. I think it's fascinating when it comes to how our minds work, because a lot of the times we have our kind of internal processes of how we kind of generate ideas, how we kind of uh, engage with our subconscious mind. But sometimes when we're communicating, we may be experiencing the same thing, but the way we communicate it is different. And so one of the hardest parts about communicating is being able to express what it is that you're truly feeling or doing or uh, experiencing. And so I think that that's just where communication is so profound, but it's so challenging at times, especially when you get onto the deeper levels such as spirituality and consciousness and how we uh, operate as individuals.
0: I found that when I'm able to lift my pick up more, like and I can hear my own thoughts and I see all my thoughts as just different perspectives, then it's like talking to to you. It's like it's sort of just like a mirror almost. So why would I push down the pickup just because it's your ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think fiat conversation is very much like I should defend my point or it's part of this fiat culture that you said it's this is like extraction, you know, sort of that you have to survive in this world. You have to have the best ideas and my ideas should be more important. I don't know. So it's this. Like higher conscious conversation, and this is like one of my favorite topics, like how will the world look like when 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 Bitcoin has healed the world and we are we are working together as a humanity mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that I really like to go there with my thoughts and and I think this holding this pickup up will be part of this because mm-hmm. it's just reference points. And this thing with my ideas, your ideas, it's it's not really relevant. So it's just Mm -hmm. like me meditating, listening to my own ideas, or talking to you, listening to your ideas. It's sort of similar feel to it.
1: For sure. And and I think that that's where I'd kind of briefly talked about kind of the human economy and the commercial economy. I think the human economy, when it's kind of built on human relations and morality-based exchange, because we want to do things for the betterment of society, all of a sudden – we, especially with idea generation, it's kind of a collective endeavor. And so when we're communicating with each other, it is not to kind of say, well, I've got better ideas than you. It is to just kind of express, these are my experiences. I'd love to hear your experiences. And how can we, how do these things interact so that we can kind of get the best out of this situation from our knowledge base or from our our experiences? And I think that's profound because yeah, a Bitcoin world completely changes how we interact with one another. And suddenly everyone is trying to offer value. And actually, when I was, I was just recently in Prague at a Liberty for a Lifetime conference, and Knut uh, and I were talking, and one of the things that we were talking about was the fact that when it comes to fiat currency, you've got this money that can be taken through force. And so because it can be taken through force, are your things really yours? And all of a sudden, again, it goes back to the fact that we have an extractive economy. You can take something just by applying pressure. Whereas when you have something like Bitcoin, which you can store your seed phrase in your head, you can store value in your head. There is no way for someone to get access to it through force. The only way they can gain access to it is by offering value and for you willingly giving up your Bitcoin. And so all of a sudden, society comes about trying to offer value and give back to society rather than trying to use force and extract from society, which I think is so fascinating.
0: Yeah. And it goes well together with my reference point that i think a decentralized society will not come until people are able to sense unconditional love for Mm -hmm. me it's become really like as long as people are fear-based they are in this extractive economy as you say so they can never do actions without thinking of a reward you know while unconditional love is it's opposite it's like You do something because you feel in harmony with the creation and and you want to do your part. And then the reward is sort of just indirect. The sort of the basis, the foundation of a decentralized uh, humanity or decentralized society. So until we come to that point, it will be a centralized society. That's sort of how it shapes itself because of the fear motives behind our actions and as soon as people start acting with love as you say unconditional love then it will it will automatically turn into a decentralized society where everyone will benefit so this is why i'm so focused on the consciousness part like i i love bitcoin i think it's it's important but without expansion of consciousness we we will still sort of even if we have the best money in the world if we still act from fear we will centralize ourselves in small citadels around the world and sort of start maybe fight against each other but i'm sure it, it will go together but i'm i'm just thinking why not work on both ends of the candle so to mm-hmm. speak
1: when well, i think you bring up a really good point which is I think sometimes we we always think about kind of well, what comes first. And I think that it's a chicken or the egg scenario, because I think, again, if we just have kind of a broken society that morally is in the wrong place, or uh, from a thought perspective, they're not necessarily conscious beings that want to connect, then you can have the best currency in the world, but it's going to get pretty quickly broken down. And so I think that in line with changing the way that we process values through the exchange of money, such as fiat and Bitcoin, uh, in line with kind of transitioning to a Bitcoin world, I think we also need to change how we interact with one another. And I think both of them help one another. So I think having a clean way to express ourselves in a trustless and permissionless way, such as Bitcoin, will help us kind of become more conscious. But at the same time, we also need to focus on consciousness in order to be able to recognize that Bitcoin is this phenomenal thing that can truly... Change the world that we live in. And so I think it's a chicken or the egg scenario. They both benefit from one another.
0: Oh, thank you very much for your time. So, Seb, let's do this again uh, later in life.
1: <laughs> yeah, 100%. And uh, hopefully, one day we'll get to meet in person. I know we weren't too far away from each other when we are in Europe, but yeah, it'd be great to meet up in person. And if anyone uh, finds this kind of content interesting, you should definitely, if you if this is one of the first podcasts of Summers you listen to, you should listen to more because they're absolutely amazing. And uh, you should also just check out Looking Glass. is kind of uh, the little company that I formed with some really inspirational individuals. And we kind of teach people about the importance of sound money, financial literacy, and macroeconomics. And then I also have just a little newsletter uh, called The Chi of Self-Sovereignty. And you can find it at sebbunny.com, which is S E B B U N N E Y. It's a free newsletter that kind of explores self-sovereignty and what it means to be sovereign.
0: Great, great. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. So please go and find Seb and do a course, maybe. in up the class. That's it.